Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you ever wondered what it would feel like to be a rock star? Center stage at some big venue singing a song you know the audience love? Well, my guest Nico Case described to me how that feels for her. It's not like anything else, you know? And sometimes when your sound on stage is just right, you feel like what it would feel like if you were a fire hose and you could spray water really hard for a really long period of time. Or you're like a fleshy windsock just hanging off of a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Nico Case about the self-reliance that comes from losing your parents, the importance of owning your own work, and why she moved to live on a farm. There's cows that come over to my house. It's pretty (laughs) awesome. (laughs) They moo when they see me coming. It makes me feel good. (laughs) They're big brown eyes. Then later, I'll talk to the legendary musician and co-founder of A&M Records, Herb Alpert. He's got a new record out called Come Fly With Me. He'll tell me about the first time he picked up his signature instrument. When I was eight years old, there was a music appreciation class in my elementary school. And in that uh, room, there was a table filled with instruments, and I happened to pick up the trumpet. Tried to make a sound out of it because I thought you just blow hot air into the mouthpiece. That didn't work. But, you know, when I finally made sound, uh, it was speaking for me. Plus, I'll tell you about the unifying power of Danny Hawk's film, jails, hospitals, and hip-hop. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Nico Case has a voice that's so powerful, it's kind of hard to imagine that at one point in her career she wasn't a singer. She started as a drummer in punk bands, swept up in the excitement of the Pacific Northwest music scene in the mid-'90s. At first, she sang from behind her drum kit, but then she stepped out front with a guitar, and she hasn't looked back since. Case is one of the most acclaimed artists in the world of, I don't know exactly what to call it, indie rock or singer-songwritery, experimentally, whatever. Anyway, it's tough to find someone more beloved, both for her solo work and for her occasional dalliances in the indie supergroup, The New Pornographers. And trust me about that belovedness. I'm the person who gets the guest requests for this show. And Nico Case has pretty much been running at number one since I started asking. Case just released a box set of her first eight albums called Truck Driver Gladiator Mule. Here's an old one, Duchess, from her 1997 debut, The Virginian. Case, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm terrified of the sound of my own voice. (laughs) 
I'm I'm just like a writhing fetus over here. Oh God! You're in New York <laughs> and I'm in Los Angeles, and so I can't see you. But as that song was playing, I was thinking of that. You know, there are people who will sit there and sing along to their own playback because they just they make their music because they love it and they love to live with it or whatever. And then there are those who just can't. Those people bear. are freaks. Those people are freaks. <laughs> You tell that to the Pointer Sisters. Well, if I was in the Pointer Sisters, I would sing along with my own music all the time. <laughs> but I'm sadly, I'm not. I do another show called Jordan, Jesse Go, and my co-host on that show, Jordan, said to me once that if he had the power to erase every piece of artistic work that he had done more than six months previously from the internet and possibly from like the collective memory, he would be glad to push that button. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel about the work that you did 15 well, and Well, I mean some of it is a little painful like that particular song you were just playing Duchess is a Scott Walker song and when I recorded it I didn't really know that I mean I'm not a trained musician at all but I did not understand that if a key was too high for you you could change the key to a lower key <laughs> And I did not do that. So basically it's me just screaming on the chorus, which um, makes me go, dude, (laughs) did you really do that? Yes, I did, world. And it's right there for you to judge me by. (laughs) And a guy actually said to me that was in a band that was passing through that studio when it was in downtown Vancouver, um, he actually said to me, you know, Nico, you're a good singer, but you have absolutely no dynamic which sounds like a really rude thing to say, but he was absolutely right. I was so scared that I just sang everything like this. So I hope that entire first record has moments where you can hear human breathing or not <laughs> not shrieking because the musicians did the best job, but I probably just sang like this the whole time. Canadians are polite, you know. They didn't tell me, except for the guy who was a dual citizen who told me I had no range because he was half American and could say that out loud. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to singer-songwriter Nico Case. Her complete discography has just been collected as a vinyl box set called Truck Driver, Gladiator, Mule. As a young woman, did you think, I'm going to be a singer once they let me out from behind this drum kit, or did you realize you had a voice later on in the game? Well, I always really liked singing, a lot. Um, It felt really good. And then I got in a band called Mao in Vancouver, and we were all writing songs together. And I remember um, writing, I don't remember which song it was, but I was like, well, who's going to sing this? And they were like, sing it yourself. (laughs) I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to figure out how to do that. So I did. It It was that simple, really. And uh, I just started writing songs that weren't necessarily the kind of songs that that band did. But um, I don't know. They shoved me off the cliff and it was good. Did you have that same fear singing that you were just describing singing on your first album that drove your relative lack of dynamics? I don't know. I was just such a aggressive kid, I think. I talked my way into it without realizing that that's what I had done or I just really 
believed it could happen or I'm not really sure. It's like I ha- a lot of things that I did were based on the fact that I didn't know I couldn't do them. Listening back now, I know I couldn't do them. But I think it's probably pretty okay to just learn in front of people. I, I, I could not, you know, re-release that first album, but it would kind of be like lying or just being dishonest. I feel like it must have been a very, I don't know, a, like a very particular experience to learn to sing on stage when you were often also playing drums, right? I mean, mm. like, there's only like, there's like Levon Helm and, and Buddy Miles and, you know, there's like, it's hard. Yeah. And Phil Collins. Yeah, there you go. Phil Collins. Phil Collins is great at singing and playing drums. Uh, but, well, you know, and Levon Helm, obviously, is kind of the end-all, be-all for me of singing and playing drums because you can't hear his breathing change, which is a really, really, really difficult thing to do. It's like he holds his body in two separate compartments to do two different things. It's just as amazing as something like cyclical breathing or something like that or, I don't know, or tube and throat singing. Like, it's that amazing that you'd be able to make it's it's hard enough to play drums and separate your hands and feet, but then to separate your breathing from breathing for like that's insane. That's an insane skill. It's also a very athletic thing to play drums it is indeed. in a way that it is not to like play piano or play guitar. Mm, maybe. I mean, guitar is like this weird Pilates holding and then drums are more like this weird aerobicizing workout. <laughs> Depending on how you play. I mean, some people barely move. Do you think that you sang differently when you played drums? Oh, yeah. I'm sure I was huffing along like a choo-choo train. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) I hope hope it's not what I think. I mean, it was really fun to sing and play drums because you do have to do weird compartmentalized kind of swoops and things to be able to breathe at a certain time when you change your hands over. Were you afraid to front a band? Were you at all self-conscious about being the center of the attention going on stage as Nico Case rather than going on stage as a member of a band? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't, you know, being at the front of the stage not holding anything, you know, because I didn't start playing guitar at the front of the band. Um, You don't know what to do with your hands ever. And that's really uncomfortable. You could hold the microphone as hard as you can, like you're worried about falling down. Or I don't even remember what I did. I realized I kind of bounce up and down. Um, And I didn't realize that until I saw this uh, documentary um, called International Sweethearts of Rhythm about the International Sweethearts of Rhythm, who were an all-female big band um, kind of from the World War II era. And uh, the band leader, she's the lead singer of the band. She holds a baton in her left hand, kind of behind her. But since she's singing to the audience, she kind of just bounces up and down. And I was like, holy I do that. I wonder if that looks weird. It looks cool when she does it, but I don't know if I look very cool. But I still bounce up and down, and uh, I'm definitely not able to shut that off. Do you like performing? Yeah, I I like it a lot. 
it's not like anything else, you know? And sometimes when your sound on stage is just right, you feel like what it would feel like if you were a, a fire hose and you could spray water really hard for a really long period of time. Or you're like a fleshy windsock just hanging off of a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I mean, one of the weird things that I find about performing, which I also enjoy doing, is that it is such a compact experience. You know, you're going on stage for an hour or 90 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you have the whole rest of your life around that to sort of like bend yourself out of shape about it. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten to the point in your performing career where you feel like when you are on tour or when you have shows coming up, you can, you know, live within yourself like a normal person until it's time to go on stage? Or does that time on stage kind of reach back into the rest of your life and, and twist things up? Well, I don't have a stage persona and I'm not formal. So I feel like all day is kind of just my regular life. That doesn't mean that I don't think that it's, you know, a really important part of my day, but it's the part of my day where I have to be the most focused. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it just kind of ends up, it's all kind of one in one seal a meal packet each day. And all your time is very counted for and kind of military in a way. So... Yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but I don't usually feel nervous before I go on stage. There are definitely venues that intimidate me sometimes, or I'll just get a weird little idea in my head and I get freaked out about something. But for the most part, I'm not weirded out by going on stage. It does seem totally normal. Can you give me an example of something that... um got in your head some uh, a place or a or a thing well i don't i don't like being filmed during the show so it, there's definitely been a lot more weird distractions since iphones and camera phones have gotten really popular um i forget the words and i'm i'm afraid of being filmed i really i, I feel just really stalked and i don't like it and i screw up the show and people who paid money to come see the show don't get their money's worth. Do you know what I mean? Like, And I think in the end what bothers me the most if it keeps happening is the fact that I've asked people nicely not to do it and said, hey, you know, it kind of makes me feel really unhappy. Could you not do that? And people still feel like it doesn't matter what the audience around them feels or what I feel they're going to make their super <laughs> recording of it on their iPhone and kind of disrupt everyone's night, which, you know, it's not acceptable at the movies. And, you know, that's a pre-recorded event. And I remember going to see Adamant on my birthday a couple years ago, and I couldn't really see him on the stage because it was just a bunch of people's iPhone screens holding it up. And so I couldn't really see him. I could just see their phones. And that was a drag. So I just, I don't want it to turn into that. Because there's something really nice about going to a town and 
having a special event where it's not like a strip mall. It's not broadcast everywhere. There's still a little bit of mystery, and we're all there together regarding one another. And, you know, you need your audience to complete the circuit. You need them to pay attention to you, not 100% necessarily, and they need to be doing it in a way that makes them comfortable too. But, you know, the camera phone just kind of takes you out, and you're just not there anymore. And it's and it's weird. It's interesting to me because I would imagine, uh, you know, there's that you're kind of protecting that ephemerality of that experience. But it sounds like even more important to you is the kind of collective connection of being at a show, which is absolutely. You know, it's it's not just someone not just someone taking themselves out of it, but um, the way that someone taking themselves out of that group experience can disconnect other people around them and uh, potentially disconnect you. Yeah, and it it makes other people angry and they don't feel like it's their place to say so. I think it is. I think people should tell people to stop if they're doing it. (laughs) And, you know, I don't. maybe it's something to do with being a woman, but I don't like being photographed and I don't like being filmed by strangers at all. I don't own the audience and they don't own me. We're there together voluntarily. It's not it's not a I'm taking a piece of this right now, whether you like it or not. Like cause you're not I don't know. I just it it feels gross. Well, I wondered since since you mentioned pretty specifically about how it felt different to be uh uh to have people record you as a woman, for example, that there are some Well, I think Mine isn't maybe so much about being a woman so much as it is having to have dealt with stalkers. Mm. Um, and there's just like a line that I I don't want people to cross. Um, and, you know, the line is, just ask, please. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to singer-songwriter Nico Case. Her complete discography has just been reissued as the vinyl collection Truck Driver Gladiator Mule. I think that often if you are a musician or an entertainer, that question of the audience doesn't own me uh, or just kind of self-determination and self-control, self-ownership can be a really tough one. Um, Not just with the audience, but because, you know, you have this relationship with a record company, you have this relationship with your art meaning things to people that might be different from what it means to you. Um, how do you, how do you feel about the stuff you know, the kind of self self-determination that you have to give up in order to be an entertainer? Well, that's, that's voluntary and that's something that I don't mind giving up, you know, to a certain extent and, you know, with cooperation from the audience because obviously singing by myself is fun, but singing for the people who are listening feels like I'm actually involved with all of these other humans and it feels really nice. Um, But as far as the music industry goes, you know, all of these crazy technological changes are happening without consent from musicians ever. 
you know, ever since Napster and all those other things, you know, music is being given away and they're streaming and, and, you know, YouTube and stuff, which is great, but, you know, musicians get a lot of flack for people saying, you know, well, why don't you want to share your music? It's like, well, I would love to share my music, but it sure would be great if the people sharing my music would have asked my permission. You know, I've been in the music industry for a long time, and there was a lot of really crazy things about it that have, you know, been around since since forever. Like, you're not not owning your own copyright, etc., which is insane. It's insane if you wrote a song, but somebody else gets to own it. I mean, you can let them do that, you know, but a lot of people never read the contracts. And, you know, musicians kind of made their own grave by not reading the contracts and not understanding them. Um, but also, we didn't think we had a choice for many, many, many years. But if you don't educate yourself about what you're signing, it's kind of partly your own fault. It's like, I'm going to pay for this, but you're going to own my master? What? You know, that just doesn't make sense on any level. And in no other business would anybody <laughs> accept something like that. Yet people have accepted it for a really, really, really long time. It's like somebody coming in and saying, oh, that's a really great house that you built. Yeah, we're just, we're letting all these people move in. Or I don't even know what a good metaphor for it is, but I'm sure that there would be ways that were a lot more beneficial for everyone if musicians had ever been consulted at any level. And we're not. The most tender place in my heart is for strangers. I know it's unkind, but my own blood is much too dangerous. Hanging around the ceiling half the time. I'll continue my conversation with Nico Case after a break. She'll tell me how moving to a farm in Vermont helped her as a musician. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Stamps.com. Stamps.com helps businesses avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. You can use your own computer and printer to print official U.S. postage for any letter or package, and then the mailman picks it up. No more wasting time going to the post office or wasting money on expensive postage meters. Sign up for Stamps.com for a four-week trial and special offer, including postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in Bullseye. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Every week, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour brings you a fun and funny conversation about the best in movies, TV shows, books, music, and more. From Star Wars and predictions for 2016 to in-depth discussions with Trevor Noah and Shonda Rhimes, you're bound to hear something that makes you happy every week. That's Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to singer-songwriter Nico Case. Her retrospective box set, Truck Driver, Gladiator, Mule, is out now. I heard a really frank interview that you gave with, I want to say it was Morning Edition, one of the big NPR news shows, and you talked about 
your parents dying and um, the particular kind of grief that comes when you lose your parents when they weren't there for you as parents when you were a kid. And um, I think a lot of people who are in that position who, uh, as a kid, who grow up to be you know, funct- relatively functional adults, one of the things that people in that position do is um, becoming hyper self-reliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that is an amazing skill. And look, I'm not saying that I have any, that any of these things apply to me, but I'm not saying they don't. Um, and that's a great skill, but it can also be very, it can make it very difficult to, for example, ask for help or... Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Those kinds of things. I wonder if that was something that, that you've struggled with the kind of like you get this incredible strength from being self-reliant, but you also, you know, it also comes with this kind of fear and this difficulty in learning how to rely on others. Well, I think that you can also be so self-reliant in a way that it doesn't even occur to you that you would ask other people. (laughs) until somebody else points it out to you and you're like, oh, that's what that strange gnawing feeling is that I haven't paid attention to. Or in my case, I would just turn to work for everything. So, you know, my my parents died and uh, it wasn't it's at the same time, but it was over the period of like three or four years. And I just kept working and working and working and working. And my body just finally said, you know, you kind of got to be sad about this, really. And then I got really depressed. And, you know, it didn't, luckily, it didn't take that long to figure out what was wrong with me. But, you know, I just realized one day that work was not satisfying me and I couldn't hide in it and I wasn't doing very good work. And uh, I, I was still <laughs> pretty much just a loose cannon. And had you? It was obvious. Had you been depressed before? Like, were you, like, did you like recognize that it was a thing going on with your body and not a permanent condition, or did it catch you by surprise? Um. Well, I know I had been depressed at other times in my life, but you know they were really extreme and situational. So I was a little scared realizing how depressed I was because my dad had really bad depression and I I wondered you know could this be something I'm gonna have to struggle with for the rest of my life which in a way probably but my depression was you know luckily it was mostly situational and grief related but I had never been hit by something so hard because I'd always successfully kind of dodged around things and when you're a younger person and a kid you know, you don't know any better. You don't know that you're surviving. You you just think, oh, I'm just living, you know. Phew, got out of that. We're not going to look back at that. And you're just going on. And that works for however long it works for. And then, you know, when it doesn't, you know, hit you really hard until you're 40 years old, you're like, what have I been doing all this time? Am I going to die? What does this mean? You know, it's really terrifying. And then when you realize on top of that, 
not only is this happening, but it's going to be happening for an indeterminate length of time, and you're just going to have to show up to work every day and deal with it. it it's pretty daunting. And But after, after a while, you know, you can settle into it and realize you have to punch the clock every day. And hopefully, you know, things will get a little better. Things start to get a little funny. Like, you can actually find some serious humor in being really depressed, which is, you know, luckily very true um, if you let yourself. Like, being depressed is not sacred, and it's not, you know, it shouldn't be this taboo, hushed-up subject because there's some really funny stuff about it. But it definitely, for lack of a better word, sucks really bad. (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, you really reevaluate everything and can't recognize who you are and all the things that used to work for you don't work anymore as coping mechanisms or just general patterns of behavior even that used to work for you or things that made you happy don't make you happy anymore or you don't laugh and, you know, you're real fun at parties. Was there a time that you... Um, that you realized or became self-aware about treating work as a, I mean, I don't know what it's like for you, but I, I know in my case that a lot of times if uh, I I will turn to work because it seems, uh, it seems so manageable and within my power, um, but then I'm not working really to achieve, uh, you know, to express myself or achieve an end or, or whatever, and I'm not, um, and it's not like making me feel any better. <laughs> yeah, you're just logging blocks of time, and it's like putting, you know, pennies in a piggy bank. It's like, well, once the piggy bank is full, I'll be fine. I just got to keep putting it in the piggy bank or whatever. But really, you're not doing anything, and then you look back and you're like, I only have two dollars and fifty cents. Okay, that was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I guess there's a, a period of autopilot which. I don't know if it's bad or good. I don't know the psychology behind what happens when you go into the autopilot because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Like, I don't really know what that means. I did realize I was in it and I was self-aware and I would try really hard to just remember things that did make me feel a little different that day or less in a gray, foggy you know, feeling than I was. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to singer-songwriter Nico Case. Her complete discography has just been collected as a vinyl box set called Truck Driver, Gladiator, Mule. A few years ago, you moved to a farm mm-hmm. in the northeast in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you move to a farm? Um, My... Family are were farmers, most of them, dairy farmers, and I always just felt really at home in that environment. Um, I like critters. I like countryside. I like trees a lot. I like seasons. And I had lived in Vermont when I was a little girl for a time, and I just felt like it was kind of the only place I had ever fit in as a little kid. And so I was with a friend um and we had gone to Portland, Maine, because it was his birthday. And uh, 
we thought, let's go to a city we never go to. So we went to Portland, Maine, and we're having this great time. And we rented this car, and I was like, oh, man, I think we're only like an hour and a half from where the farm I lived on as a kid is. So we decided to drive over there and check it out. And not only was the lady who had bought the farm from whoever we'd rented it from there, she was standing in the driveway. And I said, are you Sally? And she said, why, yes, I'm Sally. And, like, not only had nobody died, but no one had aged and no one had moved. (laughs) And I was like, that's it. I'm moving back here. (laughs) Just because you wanted to live forever? Because, A, I wanted to live forever, and, B, I just remember loving it so much as a kid, and it was all still there and still beautiful, and people were still friendly, and there's cows that come over to my house. It's pretty (laughs) awesome. (laughs) They moo when they see me coming. It makes me feel good. (laughs) They're big brown eyes, you know. Are you comfortable with uh, the kind of, like, uh, quiet and relative loneliness of living on a farm? Oh, yeah. I love it. I mean, there's just so many farms are not peaceful, quiet places at all. There's constant maintenance going on. So, and a lot of it is kind of emergency style. Like, the horse is out. Oh, good. It's dark. I'm going to have to go find the horse in the dark or, you know, there's just always something going on. And a lot of the things are really exciting. Um, Maybe not to everyone, but, you know, just things like the first night of fireflies and you notice it or the super clear sky and you're like, oh, that's Jupiter. I can see it with my naked eyes right now or weird snowstorms with weird curled up ice balls that happen on top of them or hoar frost or just weird things that nature does that you just don't know about if you don't hang out in it all the time. I get I get off on that stuff. Do you feel like you you do your work differently in the context of um you know a farm full of animals in Vermont? Uh, like, does it affect you, your day-to-day life so much that it affects your art? Yeah, I think the process of making things like songs is a lot easier in the fact that you have to go outside. You can't lose yourself in it so hard that you kind of neglect your basic human health needs, <laughs> which, you know, I've I've had the experience of suddenly you look up and it's two days later and you're standing on your bed in your underwear trying to figure out what chord goes next in this chorus or whatever and you haven't washed your face or hair and you realize all you've eaten is like a jumbo box of Cheez-Its or something whereas (laughs) at home you gotta on the farm you have to feed animals and go out and walk them and check on things and I generally try to walk around in the woods every day so it kind of forces you to be a little more healthy in that regard. Because I, I can get super tunnel vision in a way that's not that healthy. Have you ever tapped a maple tree? No. No. My neighbors all have that covered, though, so I would be a redundant <laughs> tapper if I did that. 
Uh, do you want to hear my idea for the name of an album by a rapper from Vermont that I think about a lot? Like, probably too much. Have you copyrighted this uh, idea? I don't think you have to copyright it affirmatively. <laughs> you just have to document it now. It's, uh-huh. Okay, go it's ahead. It's the 21st century. I'm so ready. So it's like, do you know who Pen and Pixel are? They made no. the, like, uh, No Limit Records album covers. Like, if you think of a sort of stereotypical hip-hop album cover from, like, 2000, you know, with, like, a lot of, uh, like, a big Bentley and, like, a gold font oh, yeah. across the top okay. and a black background. I know background. exactly what you're talking about. Big dollar signs. Exactly. So it's the, Pythons, it's designed by them. In skins, my mind, spandex it's, and boobies. In, in my mind, it's designed by them, the album right. cover. And it's called Tappin' Mapes and Stackin' Papes. It means <laughs> he's really rich from <laughs> maple syrup. <laughs> That's a pretty good idea, right? You're a professional musician. It is, it is a really super good idea. Thank you very and much, Nico. Have you got the album written? Yeah. Uh, no. Well, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a rapper, and I'm from I'm from California. I'm not from Vermont, so I feel like uh-huh. this is something that I'm prepared to give to the first great rapper from Vermont, <laughs> and I'm prepared to wait. I don't. I don't know if. I've ever seen anyone that lives near me charge money for syrup. I think it's all they trade everything. Mm. Hmm. Well, it could be metaphorical. I don't know. Stacking papes, like you're you're getting rich in spirit. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Huge stacks of dough does not come to mind, but I do want that for you. Thank you. That really means a lot to me. <laughs> And I think you should just go ahead and have the album cover designed, mm-hmm. well, regardless you can hire of whether them. or not you actually record it. I mean, it it's seems like worth an inventor's like... syndrome sometimes. Like sometimes the idea is so great that there's no way the actual execution of it is going to come anywhere near what you expected, because it's yeah. just such a good idea. It is a really good idea. You're right about that. It would be a Tesla style, like a Nikola Tesla style problem to have. <laughs> but you would still have your huge wall size album cover, tapping mapes and stacking papes. Nico Case, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was really, really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Nico Case has a new box set of her first eight albums. It's called Truck Driver, Gladiator, Mule. Thank you very, very much, Nico. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Sorry I told you about tapping mapes and stacking tapes. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a couple of weeks, but you know, I've I, literally think I, about that. I think I'm a better person because I heard it, though. I'm glad that you like it. Some people think it's too weird, but I think it's a really beautiful idea. My roommates are going to be thrilled. Great. I'm and they're just going to gonna repeat it over and over and over and over again while we stack wood. So don't think it's not <laughs> going to entertain people because it already is and you haven't even made the record. That means a lot to me. If you can bring if you can bring in a fellow celebrity Vermonter Luis Guzman on this, I think that's how we make this I think really that, go international. I think that you could just, you know, your posse is implied. We're here. Got it. We can Solid. do this. Solid as a rock. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Nico. Very nice to meet you. You too. Thank you. Nico Case, her box set, Truck Driver, Gladiator, Mule, is out now. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Herb Alpert, with his band, sold 72 million albums, and that's probably not even his greatest achievement in the music industry. He also co-founded A&M Records, which broke artists from The Police to Cat Stevens to The Carpenters to Joe Cocker to Janet Jackson to Soundgarden. And since he and his partner sold the label a few decades ago, he's become one of America's greatest music philanthropists. But of course, Herb Alpert will always be known for his band, the Tijuana Brass. The sound was distinct, and it had almost nothing to do with Tijuana. It was super melodic jazz, catchy, fun, easy to listen to, and it was everywhere. In the 60s, they sold more albums than the Beatles. Herb Alpert's new album is called Come Fly With Me. Here's a bit of one of the tracks, Night Ride. Albert, welcome to Bullseye. It's great yeah, to have you on the thank show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So we were talking right before we went on mic about the fact that you grew up here in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. I'm a native. How, how was the L.A. that you grew up in? You were born in East L.A. in Boyle Heights and, and grew up in sort of central West L.A. Um, yeah. Well, how did it differ? It was smog-free. <laughs> <laughs> and the freeway wasn't as crowded. <laughs> it seems like living in L.A. was a big part of what moved you towards the entertainment industry. I mean, not only that you were studying music, but like when you were a young guy, you got discovered in the classic Hollywood way uh, and almost became an actor. Well, yeah, a lot of that happened much later. But I mean, the thing that was fortunate for me is when I was eight years old, there was a music appreciation class in my elementary school, Melrose Elementary School. And in that uh, room, there was a table filled with instruments, and I happened to pick up the trumpet, tried to make a sound out of it because I thought you just blow hot air into the mouthpiece. That didn't work. But, you know, when I finally made sound, uh, it was speaking for me because I was super shy as a kid. And when the trumpet started making noise, uh, it was uh, it, it was talking for me. And so, you know, one thing led to another um, I studied formally. I have a classical background. And little by little, you know, the trumpet really became a friend of mine. It started to make sense. It started to uh, talk in a really uh, unusual way because I, I have this ability to, if I hear a song on the radio, I could play it right back. I mean, I don't know. I have relative pitch. So that was a kind of a fortuitous thing that happened for me. And so we had a little group in high school uh, piano, drums, was baseless, but piano, drums, and a trumpet. And in, in, that was in the, in the 50s, and there was this... Was that you and your, your brother and sister? No, no, no. Because you, bro- you had a sister that played the piano and a brother that played the drums, right? Right, yeah, they were older than me. But uh, no, this was in, in high school at Fairfax High, Fred Santo and Norm Shapiro. And there was a the beginning of, of television... There was this uh, show called High Talent Battle. And so we entered 
and it was pitting, you know, uh, musical uh, uh, groups from different parts of the city, different high schools. And, and we won like six, eight weeks in a row. And from that point, you know, we just started playing weddings and par mitzvahs and parties and, you know, having a good old time playing the horn. And, you know, I found myself uh, not knowing if I was going to be a professional musician, take it all the way, but um, I started, you know, emulating some of the trumpet players that I heard, and I could play a little bit like Harry James and a little bit like Louis Armstrong and, you know, my jazz favorites, uh, Little Miles crept in, and then I realized, who wants to hear that? That's They've already done it. So I, I was... I mean, at the very least, who wants to hear that at a bar mitzvah? <laughs> well, I was searching for my own identity, and it, 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 it took a while to get it. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the musician, co-founder of A&M Records, and philanthropist Herb Alpert. For many years, he headed up the Tijuana Brass. Herb's new record is called Come Fly With Me. When you were a young man was one of the most exciting times in the history of American popular music because you had, um, you know, you had the rise of jazz music, the rise of soul music, the rise of rock and roll music, um, or I shouldn't say the rise of jazz music, but the rise of jazz as significantly as, as art music, um, but also, you know, as popular music, um, and I wonder, like, what what were you, like, into as a 19-year-old? Well, like I said, I had this classical background. I was into uh, classical music. I was into Maurice Ravel. And uh, it, the, a major experience that I had, I was drafted. You, but, I mean, like, were you, like, hanging out at, at high school parties or, like, college parties listening to uh, romantic classical music? No. Uh, I was listening to both. Well, Actually, the thing that spun my head around was... Uh, in high school, I heard a song called Shaboom. <laughs> Was that before your time? <laughs> it's comfortably before my time, okay, but I know yeah, the anyways, song. Yeah. Anyways, you know, Shaboom, and all of a sudden I, was, I remember staring at this radio, listening to this song, thinking, that's pretty cool, you know. And I was, you know, in that time I was playing in junior symphony orchestras. And so I started thinking about, you know, pop music. And um, when I was in high school, I, I got a chance to hear the Jerry Mulligan Quartet with Chet Baker. I used to go to The Hague and listen to uh, that music. And I, I, I really started buzzing to that because, I mean, to me, that was that's a, that's a real true expression of one individual's uh, ideas. So, And these guys had something very unusual to say in a very unusual way. And I remember Jerry Mulligan used to go up to the mic while they were about ready to uh, take a break, and he'd step up there with his eyes kind of glassy, and he'd say, shortly. <laughs> I thought that was cool. <laughs> I'll finish my conversation with Herb Alpert after a break. He'll talk about how moving through some emotional challenges made him a better musician. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Top Dog Entertainment and Interscope Records with To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar, the latest critically acclaimed album, hailed as the album of the year by Rolling Stone, The New York Times, and Pitchfork, featuring the standout Pharrell Williams-produced single, All Right. Kendrick Lamar was nominated for 11 Grammys at the 58th Annual Grammy Awards Ceremony, taking place February 15, 2016. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Every week, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour brings you a fun and funny conversation about the best in movies, TV shows, books, music, and more. 
From Star Wars and predictions for 2016 to in-depth discussions with Trevor Noah and Shonda Rhimes, you're bound to hear something that makes you happy every week. That's Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the musician and record label founder Herb Alpert. His new record is a mix of originals and standards. It's called Come Fly With Me. You know, I, I read you somewhere describing your brief dalliance as an actor. Oh, yeah. And talking about, you know, you got discovered working in a gym and uh, were and are, and you didn't have to speak on this, so, so I'll just stipulate it, extraordinarily handsome. And, uh, you know, you went and, like, screen tested. And they're like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're a really good-looking guy. You kind of have to learn how to act. And part of learning how to act was learning how to engage with your own, like, actual emotional authenticity, right? Uh, hopefully that's the goal. But, I mean, I didn't have uh, those chops uh, in, in that particular period of my life. Yeah, I was working at a gym. This agent comes up. He says, you you look like you should be in movies. I said, okay, well, put me in. Yeah, I mean, I was... It's happened to all of us. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I had uh, an audition at, at Paramount Studios, and they said they liked me, but they thought I was a little green and I needed some work. So I started studying with uh, Jeff Corey. I was in his group, and then when Jeff was... You know, Jeff was a great actor himself, and when he was... Uh, on location, the, uh, Leonard Nimoy would take over his class. So I studied with Leonard for a while. And so, anyways, I, I learned a lot, but I had that feeling that I just didn't really have, I didn't have the right chemistry. I know I didn't have what it took. You know, I was uh, a little self-conscious. And when I walked into Paramount Studios and, they, and, and this guy says, well, you're a nice-looking guy, you should be doing well. And I, I, walking around that lot, there were, you know, Ten guys that were much better looking than me, and then all of a sudden I saw John Derrick, who was like uh, looked like he was chiseled, you know. And uh, looks don't get you any place. I mean, you got to have the goods, and you have to you know study and be serious about it. And I did, I, did, I really didn't have that. I have it for the trumpet. I mean, I I put in my time, and I uh, I love doing it, and I practice it every day, and it's something that's part of me, along with the painting and sculpting. What made you feel like, at what point in your life did you feel like you could express your authentic voice on that instrument, that you could, you know, irrespective of, like, who had the, who had what chops, who could play the fastest or the highest or whatever, that you had something that was original that other people couldn't do? Well, I guess I found it when, uh, you know, we started A&M Records in 1962, and the Lonely Bull was our very first record, and you know the feedback I got from that, you know, kind of catapulted me on to doing other things because I felt um, maybe I did have something as a trumpet player. But the the aha experience was when I heard How High the Moon by Les Paul and Mary Ford, and this was in probably 1958, 59, uh, and he was Les Paul was layering his guitar on this record. And I tried that at home. I had a, a, a little studio. I had two tape machines, and I went from one tape machine to the other on the, with the trumpet. And I hit on this sound that was uh, the genesis of the, the Tijuana brass sound. So when the Lonely Bull hit, and it was like top ten in the country, 
uh, it took off like a rocket, by the way. And then uh, I got a letter from a lady in, in uh, Germany who said, Dear Mr. Albert, thank you so much for taking me on this vicarious trip to Tijuana. I uh, chuckled when I read it, and then I thought about it. I said, wow, man, that music was so visual for her that uh, it took her someplace. And I said, that's the type of music I want to make. I want to make music that transports you. Well, let's hear The Lonely Bull from Herb Alpert and the Tijuana, Grass, Tijuana Brass. My guest is Herb Alpert. Um, this is their first great hit. think was the audience for this like who, were you making this with the idea that maybe you could make a pop hit of a song that sounds like what it's like to be in a bull ring um you know i didn't have that in mind i was just trying to make a good record i was trying to reflect the feeling that i got watching bullfights for uh, you know a couple of uh, uh, years and i was just uh Trying to reflect on that afternoon, I, I didn't. I never heard mariachi music, but I heard this brass band in the stands at the uh, arenas, and they would they would play. Uh, you know, they would announce the individual performances or whatever they call <laughs> the fights, and you know, be playing ba and then the bull would jump out. You know, and so I got excited about that, and I tried to. Um, you know, give the feeling of that uh, that afternoon. And, and when I first did the record, I played it for a disc jockey friend of mine, and he said, um, where's the hook? I said, what are you talking about the hook? It's an instrumental record. He says, you need a hook, man. You need to put something in it that you know, gets people to, you know, listen to it. So I took that advice and called a friend at... Uh, Liberty Records, an engineer friend, who had, luckily enough, he had a tape of 30,000 people screaming Olay. So I put that right in front uh, with the fanfare, and uh, that became the hook. And then when that record took off, uh, as the first record on, on A&M Records, we were getting calls from distributors, record distributors, all over the country and all over the world. So my partner, Jerry Moss, was you know more of the business end of it, and you know we gathered these... Uh, distributors and to, to just you know when the door opens for you really you know interesting things happen because we got a call from our distributor in Washington DC he says man you guys got to smash this Acapulco 1922's a monster i said man you are on the wrong side <laughs> you know lonely bull is on the other side you know so like when things open for you you know they they just kind of like uh, go crazy for a while so i thought about you know you need momentum in this in this uh, business, and and certainly luck plays a part in it. Timing plays a big part in it. You know, if I, I think if we tried to start A and M Records in today's music industry, it would not have happened. It's a whole different way of making records, distributing records, listening to records. You know, so we got lucky. We were at the right time, at the right place, and uh, we had the right idea. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the musician and record label founder, Herb Alpert. His new record is a mix of originals and standards. It's called Come Fly With Me. I want to play a song that uh, 
you co-wrote before the Tijuana Brass even existed, um, when you were just working for sort of a mid-sized record label. Um, And it's one of the great pop songs of the 60s, uh, Sam Cooke and Wonderful World. Don't know much about history Don't know much biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be I love that guy. Had you heard him sing before you met him? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, You Send Me was the number one record, and that was when Lou Adler and I, and um, we got together at uh, Keen Records. Lou Adler and I were staff writers. We met Sam, you know, shortly after uh, that record came out and watched him record, listened to him, learned a lot from him. The guy was uh, brilliant. You know, he had instincts. He was, uh, you know, a great soul singer from the uh, Soul Stirrers. He was the the lead singer with that great gospel group. And he taught me a lot. He didn't, uh, you know, know he was teaching, but, you know, he he listened from the heart. You know, he listened for the real stuff. He was auditioning an artist once for his label called SAR Records, and... um, this guy from the Caribbean came in. who was a really a good-looking guy with green eyes and sat down started playing and singing. And I was in the control room, and this guy was out in the studio. And Sam was in the control room with, with me and Lou. And he said, what do you think? I said, man, I think this guy's great. This guy has, he looks good, he sounds good, I like the songs. He says, well, turn your back on this guy for five minutes and let me know what you think. So I did. I turned the chair around and listened to him. And nothing was happening. I didn't get him. <laughs> and he says, hey, man, he says, people don't care whether you're black or white or what kind of echo chamber you're using. It's a cold piece of wax. It either really makes it or it don't. It's either going to, you know, uh, enter you or, you know, it's, you're going to, you know, not get it. So uh, whenever I auditioned artists at A&M, it was always with my eyes closed. I didn't want to be intimidated. I didn't want somebody dancing like Michael Jackson around me to uh, you know make a decision whether I like the music or not. So it was a great lesson for me and <clears throat> Lou and I and Sam you know wrote this a wonderful world, which oddly enough I don't think people know this. It was a demo, man. It was just something that Sam did to see if that song would work. So it was a demo. It was filed away at Keen Records in their library, and then when Sam left Keen Records and he was recording for RCA. And all of a sudden, his his art his uh, his uh, career took off again with the records hit records he had. Keen Records pulled this record out and released it, and oddly enough, it became you know one of the biggest records Sam ever had. I know that in the late 1960s, you had kind of an artistic existential crisis. Um, how did you sort of? lose the feel for what you were doing or fall off the tracks of, you know, where you were headed? Well, for one thing, you know, I had the American dream come true and uh, I didn't feel good. I I, I was financially set. I had, uh, you know, my name was out there, had notoriety and uh, my neck was tense and my 
the feeling inside my body was not real. So, I mean, I had to, at some point, come to grips with that. I was in Germany, actually. We were doing concerts in, I don't remember the, the, the city in Germany, but I had this out-of-body experience. I was on stage playing. I wasn't having a great time playing, but I all of a sudden I was in the third row looking at myself, and I was thinking to myself, why is this guy uh, unhappy, you know? So when I came to that aha, I, I decided I was going to do whatever I had to do, throw my horn into the Pacific Ocean, sell my half of A&M Records, and uh, I just wanted to find out who who in the heck Herb Alpert is and where he's going with his life and see if he can make some sense out of it. And And in that period, it was just really hard for me to play the instrument because I was uh, going through a divorce and... The horn was not talking. I mean, the uh, I was starting to stutter through the, so I couldn't I couldn't play a note that started in the right moment. It was, you know, I was stuttering. So I had to work that out, and this took uh, you know several years before I made any sense out of uh, it, so I could have fun again. But luckily enough, I found this teacher in uh, in New York named Carmine Caruso who taught me the physics of playing the instrument, and that's the thing that uh, really saved me. In what way did it save you? Well, what he did was he likened the musician to the athlete, and you had to sync your body rhythms to time. And he, he never played trumpet a day in his life. He was a flute player, and he played saxophone. But these exercises taught me that uh, there's... This is a little technical, but there's no difference between if you're moving a half-step or a octave or three octaves up, the distance between those two notes are exactly the same if you time them. So these exercises that he had, you know, kind of worked that out. And, uh, you know, at this moment in my life, it's easier for me to play than it than it was, uh, you know, 50 years ago. I mean, it's remarkable to me that there was such a deep relationship between the physical part of this crisis and the emotional part that, you know, this thing that was going on for you when you were like facing down something that I think a lot of successful artists face down, which is like, oh, I'm successful and I'm still the same person. Like whatever it was that was driving me towards success is still, I'm still scared of it or, you know, it's still pushing me to do things. And I, have the success, so that wasn't the answer that I thought it might be. Um, yeah, well, I never thought it was going to be the uh, the elixir, but I, I, I always felt that, uh, you know, getting that American dream come true would make it life a little more uh, comfortable for me, and um, having, you know, A&M, the reputation that we had was beautiful, and I thought all that would factor into me being a little more uh, in touch with myself, which I wasn't. So I, I needed to get in touch with uh, you know my core, and that that just took some it took some time. It took a lot of work, and I think it's it was well worth it. Uh, I, what I didn't want to do was wake up you know when I was fifty or sixty and say uh, why didn't I? So the, I was uh, thirty one or so at the time, thirty two, and I just took the. Uh, it seemed like the road less traveled. I wanted to go, uh, you know, go digging, do an ex- excavation on Herb Alpert, 
and it took some time, and it was good. It was a great experience, and uh, certainly better off for it. What'd you have to do to do the uh, emotional part of it, and what was the relationship between the emotional and the and the physical, like just the act of playing? Well, you know, in order to get the most out of your instrument, whether you're a poet, whether you're a writer, whether you're a musician, you uh, you got to be free. You got to be free in your body, and be able to express. Uh, yourself in a in an honest authentic way and and the only way you can do that is to uh feel good about what you're doing. I don't know of any great artists and I've met a lot of them through the years now. All the great ones really think they're doing something special. They might be insecure, but uh they uh, they have that other little chip there that says, "Hmm, I think what I'm writing is good. I think what I'm playing is uh you know, Stan Getz was a dear friend of mine. Stan Getz was a, a genius, a jazz musician. And uh, he always used to say, uh, if you can't improve on that melody, don't uh, fool around with it. Don't improvise on it uh, just because you can play some fancy notes. Make sure that everything you're playing deserves to come out. So that type of authenticity really gave me the feeling of, man, I, that's the way I want to be as an artist. I, I want to be that as a person. I mean, a therapist once said to me, make sure that the music and the lyrics match. And that means, you know, as you're walking and talking and communicating, that what you're saying is what you're feeling. So if you can get to that point with your life, uh, I think uh, it's, it's a big hurdle and it's can take you a long way. Well, Herb Alpert, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on Bullseye. I appreciate it. It's it's um, it's fun kind of identifying some of the things that happened to me in the past, and I, I try to do it in a honest way and also uh, not in a programmed way. So, you know, sometimes I hear myself talk and I think, hmm, that's interesting that that happened to you like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll get my bill later. <laughs> Herb Alpert's new album is called Come Fly With Me. Um, thanks again, Herb. My pleasure. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. Danny Hawk built jails, hospitals, and hip-hop around the cipher. If you're not a hip-hop head, that's not a problem. You don't have to be. But, but if you're not a hip-hop head, a, a cipher is a circle of MCs, a rhyme circle. That's what ties jails, hospitals, and hip-hop together. It's Danny Hawk's solo show that he turned into a film. I stand upon MCs like the goddess that I be, lyrically, vocally, none can never compare to me. The show's built around the cipher, but it also is a cipher. Hawk wrote it as a solo theater piece, eight or ten characters by themselves on stage, and every one of them are representing. Like an MC, they're performing themselves for us. In the film... Hawk performs. 40s, blunts, holes, glocks, and texts. You got your ex cap, but I got you powerless. We see him on stage. We see him in a park performing for a crowd. We see him in a jail acting for inmates. And we see his characters in their fictional world. It's heightened, but it's never phony. Yo, for real, man, just plead guilty, 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 guilty. Me, I got totally different problems, but I try to do the right thing. They lock me up, man. You know, Giuliani's like people on welfare lazy. I'm trying not to be on that. 
Right? I'm working, I'm in Fordham Road. I'm selling Boss Simpson t-shirts, or what you call it? OJ Simpson t-shirts, right? This cop come up and arrest me, because I don't got a license, all right? I'm not selling drugs, I'm not selling drugs. I'm selling Boss Simpson, OJ Simpson t-shirts. Physically, That's Hawk working, is man. sort of blocky. He's grounded. He's white. He feels honest on stage, though. Not too showy, even when he's playing across races. His characters aren't archetypal. They're particular. And they're particularly American and maybe particularly hip-hop. They're scared, but they're, they're trying to sell us themselves, sell us on looking past their fear. One of my favorites is a prison guard. He's talking to a shrink, and it's a shrink he's not sure he wants to be talking to. He got sent to her because he busted up an inmate. He's eating himself up, but also he's selling. Hey, go pick up my kids. How does that sound, okay? Because uh, I was here on time, and I tell you something, you might take away my job, but you're not going to take my one night with my kids. Okay, how does that sound to you? In another scene, a college kid is selling claves on the streets in Havana. He meets an American. He's fascinated because he loves rap music, and the American loves rap music, but he can't figure out how to connect with him. Another kid's in a hospital waiting room. He's going to physical therapy a couple of years after he got shot. He's trying to pick up a girl. Uh, <laughs> I bet you like to go dancing, right? You like to go to the clubs and everything? Sometimes. Yeah? What kind yeah. of music you listen to? Mm, a little bit of everything. Oh, yeah? I dance to anything. I dance to whatever. Merengue, salsa, hip-hop, classical. You don't think I could dance, right? Probably. No, no, no. I'm sure you can. Nah, I've been practicing for the last two years, you know. So, so, what you think? I mean... There's a kid in an attic bedroom in Montana rapping and wondering what it would be like to be black. Another kid talks about a speech therapist who lets him rap along to most deaf records. An inmate struggles to contain his feelings after he's diagnosed with HIV. These are all big setups, but Hawk's so firmly planted that they feel concrete and real. He lets the people speak for themselves, lets them tell their own story. Hip-hop! Sometimes, honestly, I feel like the whole hip-hop generation thing is made-up nonsense. But in jails, hospitals, and hip-hop, Danny Hawk makes me feel like, honestly, like we have something in common. A story to tell. That's my out shot. Finding the knowledge of self in these streets is like winning a raffle or a needle in the haystack. I transcend these times in my rhymes in my mind. I may be date bell. Hip hop, hospitals, and jail. Before I die, I'll be going out. Raise the hell that's how it is in the ghetto where the drugs sell. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Perello. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Neil Rauch at NPR New York for his engineering help. 
If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.